social injustice and racism are, are not new, but there's a spotlight on them right now in our country that's shining brighter than it ever has and forcing the world to take a look. One in five children in America today is, does not have access to the education that the other four have because of what's happening with COVID. We need to find a balance of standing on the shoulders of those before us and leaving a world behind it for the children that we borrow it from. Welcome to The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at, you've guessed it, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wonder for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wonder are productivity and human behavior specialists who use technology to help us humans on our digital journey from disruption to transformation. Learn more by visiting wonder.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R.com. I'm Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. This week, we're talking global crisis relief and family foundations with Executive Director of the Walton Family Foundation, Carol Stern. Carol is a humanitarian, child and human rights activist with a very big vision who knows how to deploy aid and grant funding. Her type of work is definitely some of the most important being done right now. I want to dig into and, and start with why you've chosen such a niche and extremely specific line of work. I always say I didn't choose a career. The career kind of chose me before I was born. I am the child of a Holocaust survivor. and uh, My mom came to this country, to the United States, when she was six, and her brother was four with neither of their parents. And she was raised in an orphanage on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And so I grew up in a home in which she always felt that her survival gave her the responsibility to use her voice. And we kid her that from the time we were old enough to hold a sign, there was one in our hands. And if there was an opportunity to speak out, we were there standing next to her. And so, you know, she instilled in us that we have to leave the world better than where what we found when we arrived in it. And we were taught that God gave us a voice and we have to use it. So I've had the privilege to take that kind of lifelong teaching and passion and make it my career. We're at a very interesting intersection in the world right now. The way I would term it is I'd say the globe is, is going through a renaissance, a revival where we questioning values, questioning human rights, questioning humanity itself as a whole. Give us some insights and some trends. So your work allows you what I would almost call like a macro view of, of what's happening in the world. Can you share some insights and trends you're observing through the flow of the foundation funds that you work with through the Walton Family Foundation? Sure. You know, it's interesting because many of my friends have described this as, you know, the, the precursor to the Renaissance. And oh. it's an interesting word to use because, you know, I think for all of us, the Renaissance engenders beauty and, and new ideas and growth. And I think there's a window open for a Renaissance. Um, and what I'm seeing kind of across my desk is that people are being forced to rethink or in the thinking that I think will lead to the Renaissance. But right now, you know, small nonprofits are questioning, can we exist in the current economy? Large nonprofits are questioning themselves probably even more so, you know, and I think that's been interesting. 
And everybody's seeking to figure out what their niche will be and how they'll need to adapt. You know, we, we have the privilege to fund a lot of different kinds of things. And, you know, I'm looking at huge art centers who were dependent on attendance at performances. Well, will there be performances again? Will the COVID legacy be that we can never have a large crowd again? What happens mm -hmm. then? How do we redo the arts? to ensure that they're still such a necessary part of our lives, but are accessible in ways that are also safe. And then I get to the civil rights agenda, and I can say that, you know, I spent 18 years of my career working in civil rights, and these inequities have been with us for a long time. Social injustice and racism are, are not new, but there's a spotlight on them right now in our country that's shining brighter than it ever has and forcing the world to take a look. They can't avoid that spotlight right now. Mm. I believe that great unrest brings change. And the last time that I saw a great change in the world, it followed unrest. You know, when the student uprisings in the 60s, when you saw civil rights um, laws being passed, you saw uh, voting ages come down. You saw major change in this country. And, and, for the, and yet again, this summer, we're seeing students take to the streets, people take to the streets, allies coming forward and using the power that they have on behalf of others who may not have as much power. So, you know, I think it's happening because of a combination of social justice and COVID, but people are demanding that their voices be heard and they seem poised to take action. And, and I think that's, I think that's exciting. Mm. But at the same time, you know, Claire, I really, really believe that progress travels at the speed of trust. Yeah. And trust is low right now. We can definitely see this as well because we touch a significantly large customer base um, in the market every month. And we also have that, that macro view. And what we can see in you know, our, our niche that we operate in is that it, that trust is a very big thing because people are waiting and watching. And I think another really big trend, something that I'm finding really interesting to observe is this, that the growing movement is bringing together different sectors. You know, traditionally in this country, there's been the philanthropic sector, the marketplace sector, you know, the government sector. And we've worked at things somewhat independently. You know, we've partnered on occasion, but for the most part, the, the, the work has been divided. And oh. right now I see that there, the integration of the three and the reality that bringing all three together is bringing solutions that have not um, been thought of before. You know, following COVID, watching something like there was uh, the best example was something called Stop the Spread that Ken Chenault and Rachel Carlson pulled together. Mm. And mm. they really, you know, they called on industries that didn't make respirators, that didn't make face masks. And they said, you have factories that are closed. Can we put them to good use? So mm. that was the marketplace solution. But in order to jumpstart that solution, they needed dollars and they reached out to the philanthropic sector to say, how can you support that jumpstart? While they also reached out to government to say, and how can you keep that momentum going? And yeah. so it brought all three together. And I think it's a model that A, allowed for quicker response, and B, is a model that will be replicated moving forward on all these issues. One of the things that really, really excites me about this this period of, of history that we're in right now is that it's 
it really is forcing us to break down silos. And you've just given us a, a perfectly practical example of how that's happened. You know, even the ways in which we've been forced to work since we're so isolated mm-hmm. are forcing us to take that moment to, to say, so how are you really? <laughs> you know, what's yeah. happening in your life? Because we're not having water cooler conversation, you know, um, we're not bumping into each other in town. And I think it is just changing it's changing the whole social paradigm. It really is. I'm going to jump in here and, and just turn it straight, the spotlight straight on the future of work. Um, I think it's fair to say that it's taken a bit of a turn in the last few months. What do you think that the landscape for children is going to be like in this new reality? Yeah, you know, work definitely has taken a turn. You know, in March, when we made the decision at the Walton Family Foundation to work from home, I really worried about it. You know, I worried primarily because I was new. I had five weeks in the office before we went to work from home. So I hadn't even met my entire team. But I also worried that um, work would slip. You know, and if anything, we've become more productive. We've approved more grants in this time period than we did a year ago. We've produced more blog posts. We've done more media statements. And the work got done. Mm. But we had no training in how to work from home. We had to learn that kind of on the fly. And we also had no training in how to do that when there is no separation between work and life. You know, before you had that, at some point you shut the door in your office and you went home. And today you don't do that. So, you know, we've had to learn how to, wor- how to work with dogs barking and kids on laps. And we, you know, had to also, um, we, ha- we had to figure out different protocols, if you will. I think in some ways it's going to have a long-term impact in a unique way too, because I think for many kids who um, have never had exposure to an office, you know, they, they've been exposed to them in different ways by working virtually. And I, you know, I also think it is opening up for those of us who haven't considered what it might be like to have never worked from an office. You know, I always think about when I was Dean at Polytechnic University, I had a lot of first time, college um, goers, you know, first generation college Mm -hmm. goers. And I would say to them, you know, you have to dress up for your interviews in senior year. And then some girls would show up in party dresses. They just dress up (laughs) in party dress. And they didn't come from a home where someone had, had worked in the environment they were going into. Or I had a kid I sent on an interview to California and I spent hours with him about He'd never been on a plane, so, you know, what do you do when you get to the airport? And, and how do you get through the ticket line? And I took him to buy a suit. He'd never owned a suit. And I thought mm-hmm. I had covered everything. You know, I prepaid for his his hotel room because I knew he didn't own a credit card. And I just thought, my God, we'd done everything. So he came back from the interview, and I said to him, so um, how'd it go? And he said, well, I was really tired. So I got really angry and I said, what, did you go out the night before? I thought the kid had gone to party because he was, you know, in a hotel, right? Mm. And he said, no, I forgot to bring um, an alarm clock. So I stayed up all night so I wouldn't be late for my interview. I had never told this child that he could get a wake-up call. It was a really good lesson for me in understanding that we each walk in a set of shoes with a set of life experiences that bring us to the point today. I think when you work in an office, you become aware of those. I think when you don't work in an office, you have to remember that fact. And now we face an education crisis. So to answer your question more specifically, one in five children in America today does not have access to the education that the other four have. 
because of what's happening with COVID. Maybe it's because they don't have broadband. Maybe it's because there are six kids living in one room and so only one can be on a computer at a time. Maybe it's because mom and dad have never gone through the education themselves and they can't really support that child the way that a child in a home with educated parents can get that support. As we look forward to the return to school in September, and many parents contemplate, you know, do I send my child to school? Do I school them at home? That's a very different question for the mom working two jobs and wondering what does she do with her children? Mm. Very different question for the parents who can afford tutors and supports. We know that the three months, you know, two to three months, summer months was originally installed in this country because of the agriculture, because farming was done. So kids had to stay home to help out on the farm. Mm. And it's just become tradition. But we know that kids have a learning gap then when they go back to school after being away. What's going to happen when we go back? That child who's that one in five who may have been out of school for a year, will he ever be able to catch up? For me, it's it's also the violence that these children are exposed to, you know, where where school in many ways was a safety. And not only is school the safety and the violence, but then also school may be where they got their hot meal every day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, and school is also, you know, school is more than the reading writing and arithmetic, it's the socialization process, it's learning to negotiate conflicts, it's learning to sit still, <laughs> you know, to, to train that attention muscle. It's all of those things that happen for a child as they go through the education process. Coming back to that thing about the upside of what this whole remote work thing is teaching us is that we're learning that we can be more flexible in, in how we work. And as bad as what the situation is for economically disadvantaged um, groups of people, particularly children, that's the piece that actually excites me is that people are learning to be more flexible. So that very hard, rigid outline that there was around what is acceptable in work, those lines are starting to blur. And I think that's a very healthy thing. And I think, you know, it's those incidences that are going to help us to blur those lines in a healthy way where people are going to be able to show up to work in more natural ways. No, and I think even the tolerance, as I said, for dogs barking and kids on laps, you know, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't normally have historically brought our children to our office and expected to be able to do our work all day. It was a rare exception that a child showed up in the office. And yet, I would say in more than half of my meetings today, you know, I will see, you know, children. Yeah, they will be, you know, and it's gotten to the point even with my direct reports where, you know, the kids come on in the morning to say good morning to me just because we've talked to each other so often. Carol, I'd just like to talk about aid. It's a big component of your work, um, has been for many, many years. Aid is a word, as a noun. It's, it's laden with a lot of history. How do you think fundraising, for certainly for major global crises, has to pivot in, and change in this environment? You know, it's, it's really interesting because I'm always rock when I think about fundraising that, uh, you know, that people are much more compassionate than we give them credit for. And that even in the worst of times, somehow the public comes through, you know, I remember in the worst economic crisis, you know, that we were going through in this country, I had kids writing me letters and adults even saying, you know, we no longer eat beef, we can't afford it, but here's my $10. 
um, because I know there's a child somewhere who's not eating at all. And I think that that has held even through COVID. You know, I, I spoke with my UNICEF colleagues. They are still receiving gifts. People still care. People still looked at what happened in Lebanon recently and, and also what happened here in our backyard in Iowa and said, here's a natural disaster. These people have less than I do. And they still mm-hmm. give. I think the other big change is that for a long time, people saw aid as charity. And one of the reasons I joined the Walton Family Foundation is because the work we do is is about empowerment, not charity. And I think that's true for the global aid organizations as well. well. You know, it's about creating access to opportunity for for people and for communities. I mean, that's actually, you know, the Walton mission is to create access to opportunity for people and communities. And, you know, I've been really, the word I use is blessed. I have been blessed that with an opportunity to work for a family foundation that has a set of values that really hits home with that idea, you know, Mm. and I think this is true when I think about the fundraising side, you know, the values that we operate on are that we, that those we support have to be active participants. So for those of you who are thinking about giving to a cause, you know, you really want to see this, the supportee, if you will, as an active participant in the work. You want to see work that's rooted in the communities themselves. You know, the solutions Mm -hmm. should come from those you're serving, not from pejorative outsiders. Well, I think the first thing is that um, when a crisis hits, you start by supporting your existing grantees, or if you're an individual donor, the charities you would normally support, you know, And we've really leaned into this. We have worked with our grantees to say, how do we redirect what we were doing with you with minimal hurdles to to address how your needs are shifting? Like recognize for years you thought this was the right thing to support. You clearly have faith in them. You know they're your trusted partner. Don't give up on them now. The second thing would be work through expert organizations. So now if you're going to stretch, you know, it's especially relevant for like elementary and secondary education programs as we, you know, collaborate to ensure that efforts in the space are coordinated. Like you want to know that people who know what they're doing are the people you're supporting. You really want to look for the experts and invest in them. And then you want to enable local responses. As I said, in our values, we believe those closest to the problems often have the best solutions. And we have, you know, focused on our home region of Northwest Arkansas and other communities where we work in our education and environment programs. And we've really doubled down on meeting the needs of our community, you know, working through our grantees, exploring how we can support new ways as we combat this virus. You know, it's, uncharted territory. It's evolving every day, but it is, again, sticking to our values and knowing that the community has to be part of the solution. Mm. You know, and then I think the other two points I would make would be you can't make perfect the enemy of the good. You know, we have to think about how to use our dollars quickly when there's a crisis. And we want to think about particularly those most vulnerable And then simultaneously, we want to remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. So act quick, do what needs to be done, but save some resources for the long haul because you don't recover overnight from something like this. And then I think the last, last kind of dot on the eye I would talk about is that remember that the poor, the marginalized across the U.S. are going to, the existing disparities are going to be intensified. 
And we've seen that, you know, people of color have been disproportionately harmed by COVID. Yeah. They've been, that is not because of physical makeup as much as less access to healthcare before, less yeah. access to better schools before. You're most effective as an individual, but also as part of a team when you have that almost like three layered approach to your work. Are you taking care of the base resources that actually build and sustain our lives? Are you nurturing your community? And then are you choosing to be very specific and very focused in the projects that you then choose to, you know, exert your extended time and energy on because there's so much to get involved with but being focused in that is is a really good thing and I think you know if I take that recipe and I apply it to the future of work and and business leaders who are grappling um, with this new reality I think that's such a succinct but really powerful way to go about this you know to say are we looking at the core foundations of what makes us tick um, as businesses, are we looking after our immediate community? And then are we being very focused? As you say, are we seeing this as a marathon, but still investing in those things that mean a lot to us? You know, when I describe a family foundation and, and one of the joys that I have found in, in this job in the past you know, nine months of doing it is that it is a balance between standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. So, you know, Sam and Helen Walton, who really had a vision that, that was of giving back, of, of building the community that helped to build their future, of ensuring that children have access to a quality education, not just to education. I mean, those are the, the kind of the stalwarts of what, of what this was built on, and we stand on their vision. And at the same time, a recognition as the family now is in its third generation of leadership and will continue to grow that we borrow the world from the children we leave behind and so you want to make sure that what you're doing is building for the future not just on the past. Turning the conversation towards a more personal lens you're also a mom and one of the most meaningful conversations that you and I have ever shared I don't even know if you can remember this it was outside the ladies room at the UNICEF gala and I was literally about three days away from giving birth and you left me with an incredible piece of wisdom that I've carried with me ever since then you said take note of what this child is like in your womb because when he comes out he's going to be exactly the same in real life tell me as a mom so not as you know not as a, as a professional employee colleague mentor all of those things as a mom what are the conversations you're having with your children right now about the world that they're moving in there's so much in the news about which age group is being physically hardest hit by mm. by covid and there's a lot of conversation around what's happening to elementary school children and high school children but i actually think the 18 to 25 year olds are being hit harder than many. And I say that not from a perspective of the impact of the disease physically, but this is when they're entering adulthood. It's supposed to be a carefree time. I think back to my college years and my twenties. I mean, that was the fun time. It was the mm. last time you really get to be carefree, you know, mm. and all of that has been stripped away from them with no replacement for it. You know, they're sitting in a bedroom and taking classes online that's not a college experience. Yeah. You know, a college experience is going away from home, gaining your independence, testing your values, screwing them up a couple times and recovering from it, mm. getting your life skills together. 
that's being, they're being robbed of that. And in our home, we've talked about that a lot because I have a college senior who is going virtually only right now, you know, that's not how he wants to spend his senior year. You know, not at all. He was looking forward. This was supposed to be the best year, you know, over the hurdles, you know, so he's made a decision this year for this fall semester. He's taking two classes. He's okay. going to extend his time in college in the hope that he'll get that senior experience once it's over. He's going to continue his, his education, but he's going to, you know, he had a summer job. He's keeping it. And, um, and in the hopes that maybe by January, this will change, you know, but then I also have a 25 year old who, you know, he got a brand new job offer just when COVID hit mm. and literally his letter of hire read as soon as we can return to work. He looked at me and he said, well, do I take this job or don't I? Like it could be years. It could be a month. It could be like, what do I do? And, and, and it was a job he really wanted. So he did take the job. And actually now, although they're still not back in the office entirely, um, he is now working for them, you know, but he's not necessarily getting the mentoring you would get as a new young professional. You know, he's not yeah. in the office where somebody takes an interest in you if you're lucky or you seek out that mentor who takes a look at your work or, you know, he's got to be his own judge and jury on everything he's doing. Feedback has to be scheduled. You know, it's a whole different ball game plus social life. You know, um, they're missing all of the personal connections. And, you know, I thought about, so when I was that age, what did I do with myself? I worked, I went out after work, you know, caught a beer with a bunch of colleagues. Weekends, we were at a concert, we were at a bar, we were at a party. You can't do any of that. Yeah. So, you know, I think about young professionals who I've crossed paths with and I helped mentor or I got an opportunity to learn from myself and, and that whole situation is just not happening. So I think yeah. that's one impact. And I think... The other um, conversation we've been having has been about work-life balance. You know, how do women go to work? For the women who followed the work-life balance was about figuring out daycare and whether to work full or part-time while raising kids. And with the next generation of women, I think it's all mixed together because there isn't a separation of work and life anymore. As we wrap this up, I want to hand it over to you and I want to ask you to leave us with one final thought in terms of, you know, this is about the future of work. This is about global crisis relief, family foundations, where and how money is being spent. What do you feel is one really important thing that we should all keep in mind right now in terms of progressing our worlds forward? You know, I guess there's a lot, you know, and, and it's a political year, so there's a lot of rhetoric. And I feel like we have to stop kind of spouting ideology and instead spout concern for people, whether it's immigration. You know, you've heard me say before, mm-hmm. let's separate the issue of children at our border from the issue of immigration law and let's treat children as children and law as law. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about a number of issues that we're confronting right now. We, we need to see the potential in everyone, regardless of zip code, skin color, you know, money in their wallet. We need to recognize everyone deserves equal access to opportunity. That is what this nation is built on. And we need to disrupt the systems that lead to inequity. And all of that ties together to what I kind of where I started with. We need to find a balance of standing on the shoulders of those before us 
and leaving a world behind it for the children that we borrow it from. Carol, thank you for your time with us today. Um, it's it's gold. Your wisdom is something that more of the world should be hearing and listening to. So we're very excited to get this podcast out and to share it with our large community that we have access to in the world of business. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time. No, thank you for having me. Always great to talk to you. And Doug, nice to talk to you as well. And please send my love to everybody. I'll just echo that. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Claire, as always, for for organizing everything. And there you have it, a humanitarian outlook towards the future of work. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it of value, please pop back for more Top of Mind conversations. For more information about Wonder, you can visit their website. That's wndyr.com. And from me, Doug Folks at Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon. Thank you.